Alright, let's uh, turn our Bibles, please, to Ephesians 3. Ephesians chapter 3. We've been looking at pictures of the church, metaphors of the church, and um, there are a variety of different images. I saw one guy had written down about 62 different images of the church in the New Testament. I think some of those were a little bit of a stretch, uh, but there are so many different images, and I've narrowed it down to four here that really, I think, flesh out and frame for us what uh, the Church of Jesus Christ is and is like. Um, many of these metaphors that we have uh, uh, that have studied here are well known. Uh, some are lesser well known. Uh, we looked at the church as the, as the temple of God, the temple of God, and we saw that as the temple of God, it's the Spirit is building Jesus Christ's church, and we all are live stones, living stones, growing stones. And Paul here kind of mixes metaphors with a stone. You don't think of life, but uh, he says we're alive, we're living stones. And and Paul makes the point that the Father is the plan. He's designed this. Church for His eternal glory. He has done this from eternity past. Uh, secondly, uh, the Father uh, has designated that Jesus Christ and His Word are the foundation. The Bible talks about Jesus being the cornerstone, that the walls are being laid off of the foundation, the Word of God and Jesus Christ. And thirdly, we're the stones. We're not all shaped the same spiritually. You know that physically, but we're not all shaped the same spiritually. We have different ways that we all fit, don't we? And uh, and build up that structure. And we are the, the sculpted stones. But fourthly, this building that God is building, this, this church of God, this temple, is for this purpose. It is to be the dwelling place of God. The Holy Spirit dwells collectively among us. He dwells individually inside of us. But He dwells individually inside of us for the purpose of dwelling collectively together. And so God's purpose here in the picture of a temple is so that we are being built up in the very habitation of God. Then we looked uh, a couple weeks ago at the uh, church as the bride of Christ. The bride of Christ. And Jesus treasures His bride. And, and we looked at the Jewish marriage customs and how that played into some of the imagery in the New Testament. And we saw that the love of God, that the, that the groom Jesus Christ has for His bride, the infinite love, is a love that was a planned love. God sent His Son into this world to fulfill His plan. It was not a surprise. It was part of his plan. He sent his son to pursue a bride and invite all to be a part of that. It was a sacrificial love. Ephesians 5 tells us that Jesus Christ gave his own life for his bride. And therefore husbands are to love their wives sacrificially as well. And it is a continuing love, isn't it? It wasn't a love that just brought us into relationship and, uh, and that was it. But it was a love that is still expressed. And still is poured out and will continue all through eternity. In heaven, God does not stop loving us. In fact, He enables us to know that love even more than we've ever been capable of because we'll have the, the, the fallen nature and the, and, and the, and the limitations of our, of our humanity uh, will be open to receive that love in a way that we've never ever experienced. Not that His love is any different, but we'll experience it differently. Then we saw that the groom exalts his bride infinitely. The groom is the one who should be exalted, yet the groom in his grace exalts his bride. He lifts her up. He raises her in honor. And he does this in three ways. He, he, he uh, uh, personally exalts her. He personally exalts her. 
We saw that in Ephesians 5, uh, that, that Jesus Christ himself is the one who brings and presents his bride. He's the one who personally exalts his bride. Then we saw that it is a rewarding exaltation. A rewarding exaltation. There will be a day when Jesus uh, uh, presents his bride to his father, when the bride will be wrapped in the, in the robes of, of fine linen and white that, uh, that she has been laboring for. To the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ shall be rewarded. And then it is a relational exaltation. It is a relational exaltation because Jesus here is not just pointing to someone else here that is a that is that, that he is impressed with. Jesus is united to this bride, the church of Jesus Christ. Then last week we saw that the body of Christ is one body, but many parts, many parts. It's one body because of the gospel unity. The spirit baptism in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses, verse 13, where God has baptized us, he's immersed us into his church. He's immersed us into the head, Jesus Christ, and he's immersed us into his body, the church. So it's one body, many parts, because of gospel unity. Secondly, because of intentional diversity. As they said about the living stones, we're all shaped different. We all have different gifts and abilities and skills. And God has sovereignly distributed the gifts and the abilities that you personally have for the purpose of building up His church. And the purpose of, thirdly, of humble dependency. All of the cogs are dependent on one another to turn. There is a dependency that we all have on one another. I'm dependent on you to fill what I'm lacking in. God has sovereignly decided not to give me. You are dependent on another person to fill fill what you're lacking in. And you are responsible to fill in what others are lacking, etc. There is a humble dependency that comes, a mutuality, a dependence that comes as we're all made and formed differently to build up the Lord Jesus Christ's church. And fourthly, we saw that there is a single authority. The head over the body is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is that steam engine, that locomotive that all of us fall in line afterward. He is the one steaming on ahead, who we are to be in line with, who we are to be in relationship with, and who we are to be structured after the Lord Jesus Christ. So that brings us up to today. And today I want to share a metaphor with you that is not as popular as the others. Probably the one that's the most popular is the one that came to mind last week, the body, right? The body of Christ. But this one here seems to be all-encompassing. It takes all the different imageries and kind of brings it all together. And that is this one, the church as the household of God. The church as the household of God. And that leads us to Ephesians, the letter to the church at Ephesus. Now you cannot probably read those little, uh, uh, little bubbles around the center one Ephesus. But those are all churches that were started and planted out of that strategic center of the church of Ephesus. Ephesus is unique because we see a whole generation of the church, from the evangelism that began with Paul and the synagogues in A.D. 51, all the way to the end of our New Testament in, John, in Revelation chapter 2, verses 1-7, through 7, around the mid-80s or so, that John writes to the church at Ephesus. And so the history of Ephesus, we're not going to turn and look there, but here's some background information you need to know. It starts in Acts chapter 18 and 19. And goes to Acts 20. So Paul spends, or Luke spends almost three chapters on this church in Ephesus. 
Because this church was strategic to Paul's mission strategy. He spent three years there in the synagogue. He spent three years there. He started off in the synagogue. Then he moved to the hall or the school of Tyrannus, where he spent time teaching. And then he invested during that time as well of three years in building an eldership, a leadership of elders to strengthen the church. He then leaves Ephesus for four years, and at the end of those four years, he writes this great book of Ephesians, this manifesto of the church. And the Ephesian church is actually all over the New Testament, if you really think about it. Here's why. Not only is it in the book of Acts, and of course, our letter Ephesians, but two years later, after he writes Ephesians, Paul writes the letter to Timothy, 1 Timothy. And Timothy had been placed there in Ephesus, to that church, to the Ephesians, he had placed there to rebuild the aspects of the elders that Paul said uh, they would uh, uh, um, become deficient in in Acts 20. He rebuilt those aspects of the elders there at Ephesus. Timothy is there at Ephesus. He is one of the leaders in the church at Ephesus, in Ephesians. Then in a couple more years, Paul is on death row. And he writes his last letter in the New Testament that we have, 2 Timothy, before he dies. And Timothy is there back at at Ephesus again. So Ephesus is all throughout our New Testament. And then finally, as I mentioned before, in Revelation chapter 2, John delivers Jesus' letter, message to that church, to not leave the love that they had had at first. Ephesus in Ephesians, the city of Ephesus, was very strategic. It was located in the third largest city in the Roman Empire. And as you can see here, it had a great ministry planting other churches. It was a strategic base, a beachhead for the gospel in that part of, of the world in Asia, Asia Minor. But we have to ask this question. The book of Ephesians, why did Paul write this manifesto? To this strategic church he had invested so heavily in. Why did he write this letter? And the answer I believe uh, that we can arrive at comes in two prayers that are revealed in this book. Two prayers in the book shed light on the answer to that very question. The first is in chapter 1, where after verses 3 through 14, Paul tells about their privileged position in Christ. And verses 15 through 23 of chapter 1, Paul says, Wherefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus, and love unto all the saints, cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. And now he's going to tell us what he prays for about this church. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened. That ye may know what is the hope of his calling. So his calling for the church is very important. And what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. And what is the exceeding greatness of his power to us for to believe. According to the working of his mighty power. Which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead. And set him at his own right hand. And in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come, and hath put all things under his feet, and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. What does Paul want us to understand? 
Well, he wants their minds to be enlightened, to understand the fullness of the revelation of Christ and His church. In other words, there are deep waters here. There is a a magnitude of glorious information uh, that that is to transform us as we understand our relationship as the church of God to the Lord Jesus Christ that Paul wants to understand. But there's another passage. Chapter 3, verses 14 through 21. After he packs at, uh, unpacks in chapter 3 his specific uh, task that he's been assigned, Paul says this, chapter 3, verse 14. For this cause I bow my knees unto the Father, Lord Jesus Christ. For this cause, everything he unpacked previously about the glory of the church. You can see that in chapter 3, verse 10. Paul says, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might by his spirit in the inner man, for the purpose of, or that, Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, and ye, that ye being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and the length and the depth and the height and to know the love of Christ which passeth knowledge that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God now unto him that is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that worketh in us unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages world without end Amen so Paul's desire is, is to see uh, Christ exalted his glory shown displayed through the church why is that important? Paul not only does it, not only wants their minds to be enlightened to understand the fullness of the revelation of Christ in his church, he also wants them to understand that he has been specifically, because of God's grace, been given a task by God to accomplish two things. Go to chapter three in the beginning. Paul's task is to proclaim the gospel to non-Jews. His second task is to bring to full view and understanding the church, which in the past was a hidden part of God's plan. Is to bring to full view the mystery of the church. The mystery is a couple things. It means that Jews and non-Jews will be one in the church. It also means that Christ, the head of the church, has a plan, an administration that puts the church at the center of his plan, that according to Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10, will astound, will amaze, will absolutely stun even the rulers and authorities in heavenly places with what he demonstrates through the church. And I say all that to say this, that shapes the writing of the book of Ephesians. Paul wants them to comprehend this, because this is the way that Christ will dwell fully in their hearts, and they will do powerful things as they understand his purpose for the church, and as they rise to the call of their new position in the eternal plan of God. He wants them to fulfill their mission and become one-minded around the mission of God of the church to accomplish things through Him that are exceeding abundant above all they could even ask or think. 
And so Paul wants this letter circulated among the churches so that others would receive this revelation, develop a powerful vision of their call, and advance the gospel in their church. Now I had you turn to chapter 3. We're going to back up a little bit and go to chapter 2, verse 11. Because all that boils down to help us understand what Paul is saying about the church as the household of God. The household of God. I want you to see this morning that the church is, first of all, a loving family. And what a nice, loving family that is up there. You know, that's, in our, that's at our best. So, um, uh, you don't see us in the bad. But that's, that's a nice picture there of us at our best here as we got pictures with our in-laws this summer. The church is a loving family. The household of God is a loving family. It's a family, a family of families. And, and, and Paul shows us here as he talks about how we're together, brought together. Uh, all the partitions, the walls have been broken down, we're together. A nice family. A messy family. Sometimes a broken family. But a family. Look how he puts it. Chapter 2, verse 11. Wherefore, remember that ye being in time past Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision, Jews, in the flesh made by hands, that at that time ye were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Now you think about your Old Testament. And there are exceptions to Gentiles that came to, came to the Lord Jesus in the Old Testament, aren't there? But those exceptions kind of prove the rule, don't they? That the majority of God's grace was poured out on Israel here as he set them apart as a nation for his glory. But Paul says, not so anymore. Paul says, verse 13, But now in Christ Jesus... Ye who were at one time or sometimes afar off are made nigh or brought together, made near by the blood of Christ. It it transverse cultures here, Jesus' blood. There's no Jewish requirement here. Verse 14. For he is our peace who hath made both Jew and non-Jew one and hath broken down that middle wall partition between us, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, for to make in himself of twain, or two, one new man, so making peace, and that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereof, thereby, and came and preached peace to you which were afar off, and to them that were nigh, for through him we both have access by one Spirit unto the Father. Now get this, verse 19. Now therefore, as a result of what Jesus has accomplished on the cross, therefore ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints, and of the household of God. So the first thing that I want you to understand about the metaphor of the household of God is that it is a family. It is a loving family brought together of different social structures, of different experiences, uh, different economic strata, but brought together into one family. It's a family of families. A family of families. It's a household of households. Jesus told his disciples in the upper room, you were before orphans. I'm bringing you to a father. I'm not going to leave you as orphans. 
Jesus adopts us. The, 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 the Father uh, adopts us into his family through the work of Jesus by the Holy Spirit. He doesn't leave us as orphans. He adopts us into his family. He brings us into relationship with him. We have access to the Father. Jesus Christ is our older brother who pursued us and brings us in. We have access by one spirit unto the Father. And we are fellow citizens, no more strangers, fellow citizens with the saints, and of the household of God, part of God's household. It's wonderful. It's a great truth. And are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building, fitly framed together, groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord, in whom ye also are built together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. Paul's just spitting out metaphors here. You've got temple, you've got body, uh, you have the household of God here. He wants us to get this, be saturated with it. And then we get to chapter 3. In the first 13 verses of chapter 3, remember 14 through 21 is a prayer that falls after this. The first three, uh, 13 verses show us... Um, a little bit more about this household of God. Paul says, for this cause, because you are the household of God, and, and you are to be a habitation of God through the Spirit, for this cause I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ for you Gentiles, he says, if you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God which is given to me, you word. That word dispensation, don't, don't load that word with, 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 uh, with what you might think it means here. It simply means a stewardship. An administration here, okay? A commission, a special responsibility or task. And Paul says, uh, if you have heard of the special task of the grace of God which is given to me, you word, which which the special task God's given so I can pass this on to you, Paul says, how that by revelation you made known unto me the mystery, as I wrote afore in a few words, whereby when you read you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, so he says, I've been given a special task to help you understand a mystery. What's the mystery? Well, verse 5, which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men, as it is now revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Here it is. That the Gentiles should be fellow heirs and of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ by the gospel. That's the mystery. Christ in you. Colossians puts it that way. Christ in you for Jew and Gentile. Holy Spirit delivering the life of Christ to both Jew and Gentile. That's the mystery. Whereof, verse 7, I was made a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given unto me by the effectual working of his power unto me, who am less than the least of all saints, is this grace given. He's pretty stunned by this. He understands it's not because he's special, but God's sovereign will. That, okay, here's two things now. That, I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. And, number two, to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the world hath been hid in God, who created all things by Jesus Christ, to the intent that now into the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God according to the eternal purpose which he purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord. So he says, I've been given a stewardship, a task here, proclaiming a mystery. The mystery is that before there was the nation of Israel and there were Gentiles. Now there is one commonwealth 
There is one people under a special covenant with God, a new covenant. It's a new commonwealth. And it's God's household. Okay? Gentiles and Jews are fellow heirs of the same body. But the second thing is this. Wherefore, I was made a minister, he says in verse 7, verse 2, uh, to preach a gen- verse 8, to preach a gen- to unto the Gentiles the insertion verses of Christ, and, here's the second thing, to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the world hath been hid in God. To make all men see. Okay? He has a special task. Proclaim to the non-Jews the unfathomable riches of Christ, and to bring to light, to shed light... To illuminate the administration of the mystery that was previously hidden. That through this church, even the rulers and authorities in heavenly places would be stunned by God's wisdom and His design for the church. So Paul's task is to proclaim the gospel to the Gentiles. And secondly, to unfold the plan. The administration. The household law. The management of this previously unrevealed mystery that's now revealed to how, how, that, how that church the church is to be managed and he's to show how God's secret plan is to be put into effect and really there's a section of our Bible that really does this uh, that really has the emphasis on this idea and it is the pastoral epistles the pastoral epistles lay out God's guidelines for the roles and responsibilities of his household I'd like you to turn with me to the scripture that we together uh, read, 1 Timothy 3, 14 and 15. This seems to be um, Paul's purpose statement for writing the letter to Timothy. 3.14 of 1 Timothy says, These things write I unto thee, hoping to come unto thee shortly. But if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house, that's the word for household, The household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. He says, I want you to know how to conduct yourselves. What the guidelines are for the church of God. What the protocol is. How it's to be ordered. The church of God is to be ordered. If you flip over with me to that other pastoral epistle, the book of Titus. Paul sends Titus... To do the same thing, set in order the house of God. And he says this in Titus chapter 1, verse 5 For this cause left I thee in Crete, that thou shouldest set in order the things that are wanting or lacking, and ordain elders in every city as I had appointed thee. The second thing I want you to understand is I've been thinking about the household of God and how it relates to a family. You think of a family, you think of a loving family, hopefully. I know everybody's experiences are different. But that's the, that's, the, that's, that's the goal of a loving family. But another thing that makes a family distinct is the fact that they are structured. There is leadership. There are followers. Uh, there are, uh, there's a common goal. There are roles that each person has in our house. Jace's job is to take the trash out, right? That's his job. So I say, Jace, do your bag magic. And he knows what I'm talking about. He goes over the trash uh, to the sink, opens the, the opens the door, um, pulls out the trash, ties it, and then he pulls a new bag out and he does his bag magic. He whips it like that, you know, and gets air in it, and then puts it in. All right, that's his role. He has other roles here. He's not relegated to the trash man of the house. Uh, but uh, uh, in a household, you have structure. 
financial structure, a budget, etc. And so there's something we need to understand about the household of God. Is not only is it this um, a loving family committed to each other, all right? But there's a structure to it. There's structure. And so Paul's job is to show how God's previously secret plan is to be put in effect. And so the pastoral epistles, they lay out God's guidelines for the roles and responsibility of the household. And so not only is it a loving family, but it's a structured family. And I have the cleavers up there, right? Because they're the prototypical, you know, structured, wonderful family. And I know, uh, you know, some people uh, mock them because of how everything is so wonderful and great uh, in the cleavers. Uh, but they give us a good idea of, 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 of the structure. They're a family who loves each other, but they're also... There's a structure there. There's an order. There's a protocol. There's house rules. And the community of God is a structured household. If you read the epistles, particularly the pastoral epistles, you'll notice many times that Paul addresses the structures of the household of God. What do I mean by that? Well, for example, in 1 Timothy, after those, um, those verses that we read there come on the heels of Paul talking about elders or pastors in the church, what they're to be like. Then deacons. He talks about women and men and, and widows, etc. In the book of Titus, particularly chapter 1 after verse 5, uh, Paul talks about uh, the, or, the elders again, the leadership, uh, the pastors. He talks about the older men and the older women in chapter 2. What their jobs are, their roles. The younger men, the younger women. How they're to relate to one of the slaves, etc. That were brought into the church. And just as he instructs the different structures of the individuals, uh, individual families and households, like in Ephesians 5, husbands and wives and children, Ephesians 6, etc., masters and, and their slaves, etc. Um, he wants us to understand that the household of God is, is a family too. It's a family that loves, but it's a family of structure as well. So Paul gives instructions for our individual households, our families, because he knows that makes a strong household of God. Paul knows that a strong family, a strong individual household, means a strong household of God, the church. That's why he says about elders that they must be good overseers of their own individual houses. Because if they're not, then they can't be a good overseer of the church of God. And to be honest, we are only here together, in this, in this room here, we are only as strong as our spiritually weakest households. So we need to be building our homes. Paul knows that a family is to be a mature unit, a solid rock in the household of God in order to contribute to the work of the ministry of building up and maturing the church. Because God's household order has been designed so the church lasts generation after generation. You want to see a church that is dying, a church that is dying is a church that has missed the intergenerational discipleship. And so the pastoral epistles lay out the completion then of God's revelation of the church. And Paul knows how important it is if the churches he planted are to last. He knows he's going and it needs to continue. So that's why he gives God-ordained guidelines and shows that the church is a structured family. Now here's what's unique about this metaphor, picture of the church, the household of God. It's more than a picture. It's a reality. We are a family. You are closer in Christ to your brothers and sisters in this room 
or any believer, but specifically in our local church setting, you are closer to those people in Christ because of your union to Christ than you are with any relative. It's a reality. It's more than a metaphor. In fact, let me show you 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Paul conjures up to the mind, in the mind here, the, um, the picture of your individual family. Alright? And he says, and this is how you're supposed to act in the church. Rebuke not an elder, but entreat him as a father. And the younger men as brothers, or brethren. The elder women as brothers. The younger as sisters, with all purity. So Paul tells them that just as you would, how you, how you should treat your individual family members here and their respective roles, that's how you treat their respective roles and structures in your church. So it's more than a metaphor, it's a reality. And what is amazing about the household of God and His guidelines is that it is a very simple design. And it is simple, and it is an ingenious design, because it is universal. It works anywhere, in all time periods, in all cultures, because it follows a natural created order that God set forth in nature, and it's designed to bring harmony that demonstrates God's wisdom to the world as stable, reproducing, intergenerational churches are produced. Anytime we hang too closely and tightly to things that are cultural, the things that are not in scriptures, laid out in scripture, we have just made our church life shorter. You understand what I'm saying there? What I mean by that is what God has laid out is what makes our church last. When we attach cultural things to it, we have limited the lifetime when we cling to those things because God's church is to continue from generation to generation, culture to culture. And that's important to understand. So the household of God is laid in this rich, deep foundation that we are a loving family, brought into fellowship with Christ and each other through the Spirit, that we have an eternal Father, and that loving family is a structure. That we're to live in that structure. The guidelines of the New Testament church are, are God's household guidelines. He is, and people bristle at this word, but he has rules. He has patterns. And they are for our joy and his glory. I, I included some in, your, in the handout there in your bulletin. That might be a rich study for you sometime. To look at some of the guidelines for the church of God. But back to Ephesians chapter 3. Finishing up here, I want you to understand this. Paul's task is to show how God's house is to be managed. What God has done for us, and now what God wants to do through us, and to us, what the household order is. And it's through the management of this entity, the church of the living God, that God's wisdom, according to Ephesians 3, verse 10 and 11, God's wisdom will be displayed in the watching universe. And Paul has been designated this special task of revealing the plan of administration. And once, once the church is set in order, Titus chapter 1, verse 5, once it's set in order, in other words, one, what is deficient is now filled in and completed, the church becomes a strong beacon of light and brings beauty to the gospel. That's why in 1 Timothy 3, 14 and 15, after he says that you may know how to conduct yourselves, he says, in the household of God, the church, the church of the living God, it says it's a pillar and ground of the truth. 
It supports and holds up the truth. It's a strong beacon of light. And so Paul prays in the book of Ephesians that these Ephesians and the other churches would read this letter, that they would fully grasp that they're God's household, the family of God, and the instructions for the management of it with Christ as the head and all His power flowing through it so that the fullness of Christ would dwell in them, the power of the Spirit would be unleashed, and they would accomplish things beyond what their prayers would even imagine, exceedingly abundantly above all we ask or think. And this would become the core of their identity. And they would fulfill all of God's purposes that they had been created for as his household. Look back in chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. We really like verse 8 and verse 9, how we're saved. That's what God does to us. Sometimes we miss verse 10, what God wants to do through us. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, as any man should boast. And everyone said, Amen. And verse 10 says, now get your tails going here. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, for the purpose of good works. We are his craftsmanship, he's crafting us here in this household. Created in Christ Jesus for this purpose, unto good works. Notice this, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. What's he saying? God has saved us to bring us into his household so that we would participate in his pre-existing divine plan that he is bringing to realization now. Right now. There are particular works that God, according to his wisdom, has prepared for us to do, to accomplish. So that through our participation in them, we display the manifold wisdom, in Ephesians 3, the multifaceted wisdom of God through the church, doing those works that God's prepared in advance. As we are a new community leading a radically new kind of life. The reasons we do things are radically different than the world's reasons. And this is what God has set out to do in Ephesians chapter 3. Verse 11, according to the eternal purpose, which he purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is what God has set out to do since even before the creation of the world. To bring all things in heaven and in earth together under one Christ. And for his people to participate in his design. Chapter 3 verse 11 tells us an eternal purpose. The household of God, the church. It's a big deal. It's a real big deal. And so setting the church of God, the household of God in order, setting it according to his revealed plan, following the guidelines for his church, it builds up the body of Christ and accomplishes his purpose, and it makes the glory of Jesus shine brightly to the world. For the household of God. So as we study the New Testament and God shows us things that need to be true of our church in order to fit this, we need to surrender and say, Lord, this is your church. We need to be what he wants us to be. Not what the latest trends want us to be. Not what the old traditions want us to be. We need to be what Jesus wants us to be. Because this is his book. Let's pray.
Lord, we do praise and thank you that you and your mercy and kindness have called us out of darkness and the light to proclaim the excellencies of the one who has redeemed us. Lord, we thank you that you have brought us into a family that is united to Christ, that is to love and sacrifice for one another. Oh Lord, we thank you that you didn't just leave us in the dark, but you very clearly have laid out the principles that we are to incorporate in our cultures, in our time periods, in order to live under the household guidelines of Jesus Christ for His church. Lord, as we continue in in this series here in the church, I pray that you would um, uh, help us to uh, receive the answer here to Paul's prayer, that our minds would be opened to what your word says, and that our our hearts would be filled with the reality of the love of God for us through His church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.